Hello everyone, this is JB with NBW Ministries proclaiming the clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message. It is Tuesday, December the 26th, and I hope everyone had a great Christmas as we wind down 2023. Uh, and as you know, uh, if you listened to the podcast yesterday, we're out of town this week enjoying some great time together as a family, like I'm sure many of you are during this holiday season. So we're airing this week on the podcast a five-part series on tough texts and taking a look at some of the passages of Scripture that I discussed last month when I was teaching as a guest lecturer at a Bible college down in Texas. And so yesterday we looked at John chapter 15 and what it means to abide in Christ. And today and tomorrow... We're going to be taking a look at one of the most misunderstood passages in all the Bible, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And today we'll do part one, and tomorrow we will be a part two. And these are a little bit different from our usual podcast, no guests, no interaction, not necessarily talking about current events, just basically verse-by-verse exposition of the Word of God. And I thought that'd be a great way to wind up the year. We are looking forward to a a fantastic year ahead. Already have a number of great guests lined up for the first couple of weeks in January. We've got a packed speaking schedule. I encourage you to check out notbyworks.org and look at the events tab. January, February, March, all the way into April and May are are just really uh, booked pretty solid. And of course, when we're not on the road, we'll be at Plum Creek Chapel in Sedalia, uh, Colorado, uh, preaching in the pulpit there. So lots going on here in our ministry. I want to thank you again, as always, for your prayers and support. Uh, If the Lord lays it on your heart to make a year-end gift to NBW Ministries, we would sure be grateful. We uh, want to always encourage you to give to your local church first and foremost. That's the primary uh, design in God's Word for the local church today, is to uh, spread the gospel through the local church. But over and above that, if you Uh, are in the habit of supporting parachurch ministries and others that come alongside the church and help. Uh, That's what NBW Ministries does. We are committed to uh, preaching a clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message and uh, just uh, really appreciate your support. So as we wind down the year uh, and you'd like to make a gift, uh, we would sure be grateful. You can do that at notbyworks.org. Just click the Donate tab and you can either send in a check or you can uh, donate right online there. So we we don't mention much about money throughout the year. In fact, this may be the only time all year we've mentioned it. But I know in our case, Wendy and I at the end of the year are always thinking about uh, you know some of the ministries that we support uh, through the year throughout the year and, and maybe giving a little extra uh, to help that ministry out. So we thought we'd pass that along to you. So James chapter 2, dead faith is the uh, phrase that James used. What in the world is he talking about? Uh, I hope you enjoy this uh, teaching, this podcast. Again, today on uh, Tuesday will be part one, and then tomorrow we'll continue the discussion of James 2 uh, with uh, part two of this podcast. Hope everybody has a great week. Uh, feel free to reach out anytime if we can help with anything. Check out our website, all the free resources and materials that are there. And uh, we look forward to talking when we get back in town. God bless everyone. Okay, dead faith. That's what we're going to be talking about today. This is probably the most difficult passage uh, for folks to really understand properly as it relates to the doctrine of salvation. In fact, this uh, passage, uh, even if you've you know kind of come to the correct understanding of it, Unless you really remind yourself of it and read it regularly every so often, when you come back to it later, you're going to be thinking, 
what does this mean again? It's just, it's been so mistaught through the years of church history that it's just, uh, it's very difficult to, to nail it down. So I want to encourage you to really take good notes, listen carefully. Don't, as always, don't take my word for it, uh, but, but really let the text speak for itself. But this passage is so controversial, James 2, 14 to 26, that Martin Luther didn't even think James was part of the Bible. It was because of this passage that Martin Luther's Bible had 65 books in it. He didn't think James was inspired because this passage, he thought, contradicted the plain teaching of the Apostle Paul and other parts of the New Testament that salvation is by grace through faith alone. So uh, let, me, let me kind of uh, set the stage by, by giving kind of a provocative uh, statement that I'm just going to let hang out there and then we'll come back and hopefully by the end of uh, our time studying this passage you'll understand what I mean. But uh, the fact of the matter is James is teaching in this passage that salvation is absolutely by works. You cannot get saved by faith alone. You have to have works. That's what he's saying. All right, so now does that pose a problem in your mind? Yes. Sounds a little uncomfortable? Yes. Seems contrary to what we've been talking about for four days and what, yes. what you understand God's Word to clearly say? All right. Well, that's because uh, you're, you have some, some word meaning uh, issues. But that's what he's saying. James says, faith to save you has to have works. It can't just save you by itself. Let me explain what I mean. But let's lay the foundation. So, as I mentioned, it's a very famous passage. It's a debated passage. It's puzzling, to say the least. I hope you got that from my little teaser there. It is a somewhat difficult passage, especially when you understand it, I mean, when we read it in English. Now, one of the things we need to understand is that uh, the Bible wasn't written in English, as you've heard me say many times, and so I'm not suggesting that when James, the Lord's brother, wrote this passage under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that that first century church that received it was uh, confused by it. I don't think so at all. I think they understood exactly what he meant. I just think that 2,000 years later, as we do our best to interpret Scripture within a historical context, we're, we have so much baggage on each of these English words, particularly the word save, that we misunderstand it. Uh, so uh, we want to go back to the original text, the original context, and see what the words mean. What we're going to find out is this actually is a pretty important and key passage regarding spiritual maturity, not regarding eternal salvation. But yet most people see this as a common proof text for works-based gospel models. And I've said this many times, I don't have like scientific proof of it, but I'm pretty sure I'm right just from anecdotal tests that I've done through the years. But if you were to pull 10 commentaries on the book of James off the shelf from any Bible college library, seminary library, pastor's library, how many of you do you think would take the incorrect interpretation of James 2, 14 to 26? 10. 10, exactly. <laughs> Odds are all 10. That's because the correct understanding it's very rare to find someone who gets it. Uh, through the years, I can count on one hand the number of commentaries that I've come across that, that really connect the dots properly with what's going on in this passage. Because again, without clarification, without you know, just laying it out there, without explaining what we mean by it, James plainly says, 
Faith alone will not save you. You've got to have works. That's what James says. <laughs> so you could understand why Martin Luther said, uh, hold on, there's a problem with that because Paul emphatically says repeatedly that you're saved by faith alone, not by works. And so Luther, to his credit, was at least intellectually honest enough to say, if that's what James is saying, and I understand it to be contradictory to Paul, the Bible can't contradict itself, therefore James must not be part of the Bible. Now, he's wrong. James is part of the Bible. And yes, that's what James is saying, but that's not what it means. So, uh, and we'll explain what it means as we work our way through the text. But again, you know, you have to own the fact that James says you cannot be saved by faith alone. It takes works. But what does that mean? That's the question. So the author, as I've already said, is James, the Lord's brother. I think it's one of the earliest books in the New Testament with the possible exception of Matthew. He wrote in the early to mid-40s, roughly 44 to 47 A.D. Remember, the church was founded in 33 A.D. Uh, James was writing to Jewish believers who began fleeing Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. So early on in the church, we see Stephen get martyred. The church, you know is all uh, concerned about being a target of persecution, so they begin to disperse abroad. And James uh, writes this letter as sort of a pastoral letter, and that's going to be important when we get to you know, some of the things that he says and the way he communicates it in his style to understand that he's really a pastor preaching a sermon. But uh, James then writes uh, to these scattered church members and challenges them to persevere in their faith. Should believers persevere in the faith? Absolutely. If you don't, are you going to hell? No. See, that's the issue. So we want to make sure that we use Bible terms with Bible definitions. Just because Calvinism, as we talked about Tuesday with that fifth point of the Calvinist doctrine, has sort of co-opted the term perseverance and turned it into something it's not, doesn't mean we can't use the term perseverance. Okay? It's a biblical concept when properly understood. We are encouraged to hang on to the faith, to, to remain steadfast, to, to be faithful unto death, to run the race, right? To finish the race, to keep the faith, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. But uh, we're not ever told that if we don't do that, it proves that we're not saved and we're on the road uh, to hell. Some of the unique features of this book, before we turn uh, to the text, uh, you have a lot of parallels and allusions to the Sermon on the Mount. So remember... James grew up with the Lord. They were brothers, half-brothers. And uh, so and there was no doubt, we, we can say with relative certainty, just because of the content of his letter, that he was probably sitting on the hillside that day when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it didn't click for him until after the resurrection when James got saved, but uh, there's a lot of overlap between those two books. As I mentioned, it's probably one of the earliest books. Fifteen times he uses the word brethren, a further indication that he's writing to believers here. Uh, Adelphoi, brothers, uh, is an endearing term to speak of those who are uh, in Christ together and brothers in the Lord, brothers and sisters. Uh, the word save is a pretty important word. Now, if you're really uh, paying attention and your mind is still turning over, what did Hickson mean when he said, we can't be saved by faith alone, it takes works? And then you see that save is a key word. You might begin to piece together the solution to this alleged contradiction um, because understanding the meaning of the word save is, is the key. Um, 
And then the word profit or gain, both of those are used uh, uh, in this passage in particular, and they're relevant, uh, keenly relevant. Uh, James talks a lot about testing and trials. Makes sense because he was writing to a persecuted uh, church. So here's the theme, if you will. James is essentially explaining that mature faith in Jesus Christ should, emphasis on should, result in outward behavior that is consistently obedient to God's will in spite of the circumstances. So I would summarize the theme this way, a spiritually mature faith in the midst of trials. That's what he's writing about, a spiritually mature faith in the midst of trials. Let's put, in, put it in a context. In James chapter 1, James challenges his readers to not only hear the word, but to do the word as well, because it's in doing the word that you will uh, receive blessing. Uh, in fact, if we look at um, James 1, I won't put it up yet, because once I do, I want to leave it up uh, just for the sake of the recording. But in, in James chapter 1, he makes an interesting analogy that I think we are all uh, at least vaguely familiar with, but I don't think we full understand the full import of this mirror analogy. So if you look at James 1, um, where is it here? Verse 23, James says, If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like. So that's a it's a figure of speech, a comparison using like or as, it's called a simile. So he's making an analogy here. To be a hearer but not a doer, it's as if you observe your natural face in the mirror, observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, what I think we often miss is that phrase, natural face, in the context, and this doesn't come across in English, but in Greek, it would draw you right back to what he said uh, earlier when he talked about in verse 17, just a few sentences earlier, how every good and perfect gift is from above and that we've been brought forth in verse 18. We've been born uh, by uh, the word of truth. We've been born again, would be the way Jesus uh, says it in Nicodemus, uh, to Nicodemus. So the birth that James is talking about when he says if you are a hearer but not a doer it's like you've observed the natural face in Greek it's literally the face of your birth a wooden translation would be it's like you observe the face of your birth Well, what birth has he been talking about the birth from above and so James is saying to be a hearer but not a doer it's like you look in the mirror you see the new man in Christ that you're supposed to be you see a Christian but you walk away and forget what you look like and you start acting like the old man. It's just like what we talked about last night at the, at the church. So that's the contrast that James is making here. Hey, you're going to have trials. Uh, it's going to be tough. But remain steadfast. You will be blessed by doing so. Remember who you are. Act like you know, the new person that you are. Uh, he addresses some of the issues that they were having at the beginning of chapter 2. He says, the hearing and doing the Word of God means showing mercy and compassion to others. And if you fail to do this, you're going to fail to inherit kingdom rewards that await many believers at the judgment seat of Christ. He says, for example, in verse 12, you should speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. Now, this is where comparing Scripture with Scripture 
becomes very important because the Bible is very clear in Jesus' words himself that if you've been saved by faith, you will never come into judgment. There's no judgment. You've passed from death to life. So when James says you're going to be judged one day, the only judgment, and it's not really a judgment in the sense of whether you get into heaven or not, it's more of an evaluation, but it's called a judgment, is where? Where's the only place believers will ever be judged? The judgment seat of Christ, or the bema, it's called in Greek. And it's a, a common first century uh, cultural thing where the, the magistrates in the Roman cities and in, in the Agora, the town square, they would sit on these raised platforms and people would bring their, uh, you know, uh, cases to them, civil disputes, things like that, and they would make a ruling and decide who's right and who's wrong. And so in the, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle Paul comes along and basically uses that judgment seat, it was called, as a reference to that time in the future when believers in the present church age will be evaluated by the Lord as to how we handled our stewardship on, life, on this earth, earthly life, and we will be rewarded accordingly. It's not a judgment to see who gets into heaven and who doesn't. It's an evaluation to see what you are rewarded for. So you've got to understand that backdrop and that theology to be able to properly un interpret the James reference to judgment. He says, hey, brethren, you're going to be judged someday, and the implication is at the judgment seat, because that's the only place the Bible ever mentions that believers will be judged. So therefore, you ought to be gracious, show mercy, that kind of thing. And that verse there, verses 12 and 13, actually are set the stage for and explain the context of what follows in this very controversial, most misunderstood passage, I think, in all of the Bible, because James elaborates on the further value and benefit of living out your faith uh, by being not only a hearer, but by being a doer as well. So with that backdrop, the historical context and so forth, let's jump into the text. I'm going to see if I can throw the text up on the screen here. Find my cursor here. Hang on. All right, can you see that? I'm going to make it larger here. All right, so let's go to James 2. If you want to follow along in your text, we'll just walk our way through the text, and I'll make some observations. So, he starts by saying, what does it profit, uh, my brethren? I've highlighted it for you there in, in green. That word profit is the word ophelo. If you hover over it in your logos, you can see that, ophelos, right? And it means to heap up or accumulate. So what has James just talked about? As we just said, remember there were no verse, you know, you know, distinctions in Scripture. No, uh, th those were added 1,500 years later. It was just a letter, basically a sermon, a written sermon. 
So we don't want, even though the, the Bible breaks it up, and, and this, this section that we're studying begins in verse 14, and most of your Bibles probably say, like the New King James does, a heading there, faith without works is dead. Uh, this was a letter that was not interrupted by the different verse breaks. So what has he just said before saying, what does it profit? He said, you need to speak and do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. As we said, that's the judgment seat of Christ. What do you do at the judgment seat of Christ? You heap up or accumulate rewards. Uh, I have a whole set of teachings, a whole chapter in my What Lies Ahead book about the doctrine of eternal rewards. I list 25 or 30 rewardable acts and 20 or 30 rewards, specific rewards that are mentioned in Scripture. That's what we're going to get at the judgment seat of Christ. Things like crowns, positions of authority, special commendation, that type of thing. So James is saying you're supposed to be a doer of the word, not a hearer. You're supposed to endure trials by having a steadfast faith. And then he asks this rhetorical question, for what value will it be, what profit will you, be at, will you have at the judgment seat if you say you have faith, but you do not have works. Notice that saying and doing, that's the second time in two verses that he's mentioned that. Look back up at verse 12. So speak, or say, and so do, as those who will be judged. And he says, because if you say one thing, but do another, it's, it's not going to be rewarded. So the next thing we see in James 2.14 is this question. It's a rhetorical question. Can faith save him? Now, in uh, the Greek, it, there's an, uh, uh, the construction is such that the understood answer to that is no. So you might see it translated, faith can't save him, can it? Right? So if we let me look at some parallel passages. The NIV says... Can such faith save him? Uh, can that faith save him? NASB, ESV, can that faith save him? Uh, one of the reasons I love the New King James is it's more woodenly word for word. But notice that what I've highlighted there, sort of in orange, can faith save him? There's no qualifier there. Can such faith save him? Or can that faith save him? Or in some cases, can that kind of faith save him? Remember we talked Tuesday about how Calvinists teach it's the kind of faith that saves you, not the object of your faith. You have to believe Christ the right way, right? And so when they translated this passage into English, because they thought that James and Paul are both talking about eternal salvation, and James, again, unambiguously says you cannot be saved by faith alone, you have to have works, and since Paul says you are saved by faith alone, not by works, that James and, and Paul must be talking about two different kinds of faith. So this is very important. If you don't get this, you're not going to hear anything else or understand anything else we say in the rest of this passage. Most people assume that James is talking here about eternal salvation, heaven or hell. And because... It is very clear in the Scripture that you're, you get eternal salvation by faith alone, not by works. Then they have concluded that James must be talking about a different kind of faith, spurious faith, so-called. 
And that's the reason when you look this up in other passages, again, let me throw them on the screen, you see, uh, in fact, let me, let me open them in another passage so that the video will, will capture it. Let's go to NASB, let's go to ESV, if I can find it here, here it is. Let's go to NIV, and I'll make these a little bit larger. What's that? NLT. We could throw that one up there. So yeah, we'll put up the New Living. There we go. No, you haven't. Oh, I have? Yeah. Yeah. I, every time I use Logos on the screen, I feel like I'm giving people a glimpse into my personal spiritual disciplines, you know. It's kind of funny. Um, so uh, let's link these up here. I should have done this ahead of time, but hey, we're all among friends, right? Um, are we? I don't know. Um, All right, so now we're all in sync. All right, so uh, James 2.14. There we go. So notice the text says, can faith save him? There's no qualifier. There's no such faith. If you bring up the interlinear, uh, verse 14 here, notice right here it's highlighted in orange. Can, dunatai, faith, hey, pistis, Save, so I, him, Altan. You don't see, you know, a, an adjective such faith or that faith that's completely reading into uh, the text. And so when the New American Standard says, can that faith save him? Notice they put a little uh, uh, footnote there, literally the, you know, they're at least intellectually honest enough to say the word that really isn't in the text. <laughs> Uh, ESV doesn't even qualify it, it just adds the word that, can that faith, as if there's a faith that will save and there's a faith that won't save, and that James is talking about the bad kind of faith, the wrong kind of faith. NIV, can such faith, can the faith that doesn't produce good works, can that actually get you into heaven? It must be the wrong kind of faith, because we know the Bible teaches you're saved by faith alone. And when James says you're not saved by faith alone, he must be talking about a different kind of faith. Um, that kind of faith is what the New Living Translation says. That kind of faith. That just blatantly a paraphrastic, uh, theologically influenced English translation. So again, all the text says is can faith save him? So let's slow down and, and, and back up just a little bit and make sure we're all tracking. James says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? And the implied answer is no. And so I'm going to go ahead and tell you the solution to the conundrum, and then we're going to make that case as we continue on. The fact of the matter is, contrary to almost every commentator, James and Paul are not talking about two different kinds of faith because there are not two different kinds of faith. There's only one faith. Faith is the confidence or assurance in something. As we said several times this week, it's not how you believe that saves you. 
It's not the kind of faith that saves you. It's what you believe. It's the object of your faith. If you believe the wrong thing, like we read about in 1 Corinthians 15, it won't save you. If you believe the five pillars of the Islamic faith are going to get you to paradise, you will spend eternity in hell because they won't. You've got the wrong faith. It's still faith. Faith is faith. Faith in the five pillars of the Islamic faith is just as much faith and means the same thing, faith, as faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again. The difference is faith in Jesus Christ will save you. Faith in Allah will not. So it's what you believe or the content of your faith that saves you. There are not different kinds of faith. But before we are too harsh on Martin Luther and some of these others, we can understand why they might go down this road. Again, they're just trying to let Scripture be consistent and not contradict itself. And since Paul plainly says that faith alone will save you eternally, if you mistakenly think James is talking about eternal salvation, then you've got to figure out a way to explain what he's saying. And so they landed on this erroneous notion of, well, there must be two kinds of faith. Real faith that saves you and gets you to heaven will eventually produce good works. And if it doesn't produce good works, then it must not be the saving kind of faith, the kind that gets you to heaven. So James, they say, was talking about a different kind of faith than what Paul was. James is talking about fake faith or spurious faith or deficient faith, whereas Paul was talking about the genuine article, the kind that will really get you to heaven. But all of that arbitrary you know, contradistinction between the two alleged kinds of faith is completely unnecessary when you understand the fact that while there's only one meaning of faith from cover to cover throughout you know, the Bible and in any lexicon, faith is just confidence or assurance, there are in fact multiple definitions of save. Save does not always mean eternally. Don't miss this. This is the key to understanding the passage. James and Paul were not talking about two different kinds of faith. They were talking about two different kinds of save. Remember I said James uses the word save five times in this letter? All five times he's talking about temporal deliverance from physical harm, danger, sickness. He's not talking about eternal life. He's not talking about eternal salvation. He's already called them brethren. He's not questioning their eternal salvation. He's already most beautifully said in chapter 1 that they've been born from above. And now he's saying, so brothers, believers, those of you that are already eternally saved, uh, can that faith that gets you to heaven, can it also save you from the death-dealing consequences of sin? Can it save you temporally from the dangers of sin in your life? Will, you, will it have profit at the judgment seat if you've got eternally saving faith, you know, salvation, you know, eternal salvation, but you don't have works? What, is it, what are the consequences of that? And so let's do a quick word study on the word save. If you right-click on the word save, sozo, and you say, search the Bible, here's what we find. 114 occurrences, at least in the majority text, which is the Greek text from which the 
New King James uh, is, is translated. And uh, let's just look at a few of these. Matthew 1.21, she will bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from his sins. What, from their sins. What kind of salvation is that talking about there? Eternal. That's pretty obvious. When you're talking about being saved from the penalty of sin, that's eternal salvation. Look at the very next one, Matthew 8.25. Same word, same verb, so-so. And the disciples are in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and they say, Lord, save us. We're perishing. What kind of salvation is that? Physical. Physical. They weren't worried about hell. They were worried about dying and drowning. In fact, some uh, English translations, let me open another New King James here, and uh, we'll use this for our cross-references. Uh, some English translations say, uh, in the NIV, for example, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the NIV because often it's too paraphrastic and it's, it's, it's adding things to the text that aren't there. But that's the proper paraphrase of what the disciples meant. Lord, rescue us from danger. We are about to die. So let's go back. What else do, do we see about the word save? Uh, oh, here's a lady who thinks if she can touch Jesus' garment, she will go to heaven. Is that what the text says? No, I will be made well. This is the New King James, but made well is that same word uh, in Greek, sozo, save. So the, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek, and the word that James uses is sozo. We translate it save. But what I'm trying to show you here is that when you look up that word in the New Testament, most of the time, more than half the time, it's going to refer to physical salvation, being made well from a, a sickness. It's used three times in this passage, Matthew 9, 21, and 22, always to refer to the woman being healed physically. What about Matthew 10, 22? Yeah, this one, and we see this again in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. He who endures to the end will be saved. This is, again, where people assume that saved always means eternally, and they say, well, if you're going to really get into heaven, if you're going to be eternally saved, you've got to endure. This is a proof text for the false view of Calvinism called perseverance of the saints. But when you understand the meaning of the word sozo, uh, that it doesn't, inherently mean eternally. It can mean deliverance or rescue from some danger. Uh, in this case, it means if you endure all the way to the end of the age, you will be delivered, that's the, what the word sozo means, into the kingdom. It has nothing to do with eternal life. Let's go back to uh, the word save and let's look it up in a lexicon. So if we look up sozo, just to make sure you know I'm not making this up, notice what it says right here, BDAG. This is the, the first, the, the number one the lexicon that's required in all seminaries. It's the, you know, the lexicon of Greek and ancient uh, Greek. Uh, notice what it says. What's that mean? To save or to, quote, keep from harm, to preserve, to rescue, to save from death. Look at that next one. To bring out safely. When Jesus says to the nation of Israel, if you endure to the end, what he's saying is if you 
survive physically to the end of the tribulation, in spite of all the devil's attacks and the seal trumpet and bold judgments and his persecution and hunting down Jewish believers, then you will be brought out safely into the kingdom. Be saved. Notice another definition, to save or free from disease, to make to thrive, to make to prosper. Right? So the word save, sozo, just means to rescue or deliver. So kind of like we talked about earlier this week with the word repent, which means to change the mind. Whenever you see the word repent, you should say change your mind about what? And it does not always relate to eternal salvation. Similarly, the word save, so-so, does not always relate to eternal salvation. It, it can relate to physical deliverance, temporal deliverance, that kind of thing. Let's look at just a, a few more. Um, Matthew 27, 42? Yeah, yeah. This is on the cross. Both of these, Matthew 27, 42, they're saying of Jesus, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. Sozo, same word that James uses. Now let me ask you a question. Does Jesus need to be eternally saved from the penalty of sin? Of course not. So this cannot be talking about eternal salvation. They're just saying, this guy's been condemned to death. He's on a cross. Uh, he's saved others physically, you know, from their sickness. And Lazarus, for example. Let's see if he can save himself physically. And then they said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him physically, right? Um, uh, how about this? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Clearly, physical salvation is in view there. Um, again and again, you see the word so-so used of physical deliverance. So if we go back to, to James, we've got to break free of this instinctive knee-jerk reaction to think that save means eternally. Now, I understand in English, especially in the Western Evangelical Church, we most often use the word save that way. Like if I were to say, hey, let's open up class today. I'd like for each of me to tell you how you were saved. I guarantee you, each one of you would share your testimony about how you came to faith in Christ and now you're a born-again Christian, right? That's just kind of the way we use it. When did you get saved? How long have you been saved? When you're talking with an unbeliever, would you like to be saved? Can I tell you how to be saved? Will you tell me how to be saved? How many people were saved at the revival last week, right? We use the word save almost instinctively to refer to eternal salvation. But here's the interesting thing. We've got to use Bible words with Bible definitions. And as I show in the appendix to my textbook, 58% of the time, that's more than half, <laughs> for us public school people, 58% um, of the time, the word so-so does not have anything to do with eternal salvation uh, you know, from hell. It mo more often than not, more than 50% of the time, it means physical salvation. So it's really surprising then that the first book written in the New Testament, uh, you know, the first one revealed by the Holy Spirit and distributed among the early church, that we would assume 2,000 years later that James here is talking about deliverance from the penalty of sin into heaven. 
And when you, when you understand that very first verse in this controversial pa passage, it removes all the confusion, all the contradiction. There's no tension between Paul and James. James Paul is saying, in order to go to heaven, you've got to, it's faith alone, no works. In order to be saved eternally, it's by faith alone, absolutely apart from works. He makes that abundantly clear. It's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us eternally. James comes along and says, uh, what's it going to profit you if you have faith that gets you to heaven, but you don't have works? That faith may get you to heaven, but it's not going to deliver you from the physical and temporal consequences of sin every day. It won't keep you alive. It may get you to heaven, but it's not going to keep you alive. Sin kills. This is the same James, by the way, who just a couple of paragraphs earlier had this to say about sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. You remember that? Let's see if we can find it. Um, right there in James 1.15. Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. He's trying to challenge these early believers. Later on, he, he, he rebukes them for actually even committing murder. I mean, these guys had problems. You think the Corinthians had problems. These guys were really struggling with a lot of things. And so he says, I want you to know, brothers, sin's going to kill you. Sin brings forth death. So uh, let us lay aside, oh, look at James 1.21, lay aside all the filthiness and overflow of wickedness receive with meekness the implanted word. Now this is very important because it goes back to what we talked about earlier this week about the meaning of the word receive. So first of all, where is this word that James is referring to in the lives of these believers, the audience? It's implanted. These are believers. The word receive is decamai, which means to welcome and embrace. He's saying, look, you've got the Word of God within you. You've been born again. Now welcome and embrace that and be a doer of the Word, verse 22, not just a hearer. <laughs> Lay aside your filthy behavior, right? Remember who you are when you look in the mirror. Remember you're a child of God, so live like it. Don't forget, don't walk away and act like the old man, right? And notice what happens when you receive with meekness that implanted word, when you embrace, welcome and embrace, decamai, uh, the word of God. It's going to save your soul. Now, this is the first of the five references to sotzo, save, in James's letter. We've been focusing on the second time it comes up in James 2.14. Uh, but boy, this one really throws people for a loop. Because in the same way that we're assume, we always assume save means eternally, we assume soul is the immaterial part of man. But once again, the Bible was not written in English, right? So let's do a word study on this word soul. It's the word psuche and see what we find out. Notice the first definition of psuche is just life. You, you read on and it says earthly life. And it's not till you get to the fifth or sixth definition that it refers to soul, meaning the immaterial part of man that will live forever, either in heaven or hell. So once again, we've got to use Bible words with Bible definitions. A better translation most of the time of the word soul would be life. So if we look up usages of this word soul, what we're going to find out is it's used 
105 times in the New Testament. This is the word psuche. It's where we get the word psychology, which is what? The study of life. Psychology doesn't mean the study of the eternal immortal soul. Psychology is the study of life, the whole being. So here is the usages of the word psuche. Matthew 2.20, referring to young child Jesus. Those who sought the young child's life are dead. What were they trying to do to all the the uh, two-year-olds and younger in Herod's day. Kill them physically. Life. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about your life, what you will eat and what you will drink. Let me ask you a question. In eternity, do our souls need to eat and drink? No. Psuche just means life. See? Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Uh, now, here's one where the context indicates that this does refer to the eternal soul because Jesus says in Matthew 10 and also in Luke 12, um, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. So contextually, he's contrasting the physical body with the immaterial soul. So go back to our definition. Remember, soul can mean uh, that which possesses a soul or the soul, but it doesn't have to mean that. It's not a technical term. In the same way that save, the verb sozo, can mean physical salvation, physical deliverance from danger or sickness, or eternal deliverance from the penalty of sin, likewise, psuche, or what we see often translated soul, can mean the physical life, as we just uh, discussed, or it can mean uh, the immaterial part of man. So, again, you see this again and again. Uh, where it, you know, sometimes it means physical life, sometimes it means uh, your eternal uh, soul. So if we go back to James, we're in chapter 1 now, kind of laying the foundation for this idea of saving the life. What James is saying here is, if you welcome and embrace that implanted word that's already within you because you're a born-again believer, it will physically deliver your life from danger. It will go well with you because the ultimate goal of sin, the ultimate destination of sin when it's full grown is death. So the whole argument of James's letter is basically straighten up, live like Christian, live out your faith. That's great that you've got faith, it's going to get you to heaven, but it, will that be enough to keep you alive and avoid the death-dealing consequences of sins? Everything happens in a context. That's why I say I don't think James's readers, when he's delivering this sermon or passing around this written sermon, would have had any question at all what he meant by what doth it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but does not have works. Can faith save you? Can faith keep you alive? He's already been talking about the salvation of the physical life, the deliverance of the physical life. But we, we have so much theological baggage that we come to James 2.14 and we say, wow, James is saying that faith can't get you to heaven. You've got to have works to get to heaven. Well, how do we solve that problem? Oh, well, let's just invent a new meaning of the word faith and suggest that real faith, the kind that will get you to heaven, has to produce good works. So remember the quote we gave Tuesday from Sproul 
we're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. That comes right out of this passage. This, that's, that's their attempt to interpret James 2.14, and they're absolutely wrong. Uh, I don't say that arrogantly or personally attacking them. They're just wrong. Look up faith in a lexicon. It just means confidence or assurance. It doesn't say, you know, it's got different qualities. You don't have to have fiducia or noticia or census or all these made-up concepts imparted into the word faith to make it really save you. And if you don't have the right kind of faith, again, you know, look at uh, the New Living Translation. Can that kind of faith save anyone? That kind of faith won't get you to heaven. You need the, the right kind of faith. NIV, can such faith save him? They all assume that James is talking about eternal salvation. And since we know that faith is what gets you to heaven, that's repeated 160 times in the New Testament, and James says it, it's not going to save you, that he must be talking about a different kind of faith. ESV, can that faith save him? New American Standard, can that faith save him? But the New King James, or as I like to call it, the Bible, says, can faith save him? There's no qualifier. King James is the same way, by the way. Amen. There you go. The inspired Bible. Yeah. Yeah. It inspired a lot of people. What's that? The inspired translation. Yeah. The inspired translation. Those King James translators, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, all English translations are just that, translations. But we need to remember the Bible wasn't written in English. So, you, are you tracking with me here on... The, this first sentence. If you don't understand this first sentence, you're not going to understand the rest of the passage. Let me once again explain the, 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 the opposing views. Most commentators say that Paul and James are both talking about eternal salvation. And since Paul says we are eternally saved by faith alone, not by works, and James says we are saved not by faith alone, you've got to have works, that James must be talking about a different kind of faith, the, the kind that won't get you there. It's a defective faith. So, in other words, they say that James and Paul agree, you're saved by faith alone eternally, but James is adding this new information, and actually he came first, which is another whole story, but James is adding this new information that says, well, unless you've got the right kind of faith, you won't get to heaven. And what's the right kind of faith? It's the kind that produces good works later. And hence this uh, nonsensical, uh, logical fallacy that Calvinists have come up with. We're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Well, which is it? Right? You can't have it both ways. And what they're trying to say and communicate by that is that if you have uh, faith to save you eternally, but you subsequently don't produce good works, well then we can conclude from that that the faith that you expressed was deficient, defective, spurious. It wasn't that kind of faith, and therefore it won't save you, and that's all James was saying, so they say. But as I said, that imports false meaning into the word faith. There aren't different kinds of faith. There's only one kind of faith. It's not how you believe that gives you eternal life. It's what you believe. And when faith meets the right object, it results in eternal life every time without fail. 
So James is not talking here about a different kind of faith. He's talking about the same kind of faith that Paul is. Paul and James agree that faith alone and Christ alone will give you the free gift of eternal life. James just adds the qualifier that that faith that will get you to heaven will not save you, deliver you from the death-dealing consequences of sin. As I mentioned, he uses the word save five times in this short letter. We already looked at the first occasion of that. It's in James 1.21, where it clearly refers to physical deliverance of the life, the physical salvation of life, uh, that if you live out your life in godliness and are a doer of the word, receiving, welcoming with meekness that word of God that is within you, and you lay aside your filthiness and wickedness, then you're going to keep your life extended. You're not going to suffer the death-dealing consequences of sin. And so when he uses it again just a, a short time later in James 2.14, it makes sense that, of course, he's talking about physical salvation here, the temporal aspects of deliverance, deliverance at the judgment seat, deliverance you know, from the death-dealing consequences of sin, and I said this at the opening, but James uses that word sozo five times in this letter, and all five times save refers to physical uh, deliverance. If you look at, uh, let's see if I can find it real quick here, uh, at the end in James chapter 5, notice, is anyone among you uh, sick? Well, call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them and anoint them with oil. Oil And the prayer of faith will save, same word, the sick. Now that creates a whole other problem if James is talking about eternal salvation because now a person becomes eternally saved by having the elders lay hands on them. Wow, that would be kind of nice. We could just ride the circuit, Brett. We should charge for it. That's what the Catholic Church did, right? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody goes to heaven because the elders laid their hands on them. You know what's interesting is when you read commentators on James, the book of James, Calvinist ones, when you, they get to James 15, they're not the least bit confused by it. They totally admit, yeah, save here means physically. Because of course nobody goes to heaven because the elders lay hands on them and pray for them. And yet why then, when he uses the word save in the same letter, four other times, and three of them, it's obvious he's talking about physical deliverance, do they not see the point in James 2.14? It's, it's really, they're blinded. And, and I don't mean that harshly because, like I said, 10 out of 10 commentaries are going to get this wrong. We've just, you know, we've just uh, been conditioned since the Bible was put into the language we could read in English and since the Reformation to think in those terms. And uh, so most, most Bible teachers, if they're honest, when they teach James 2, 14 to 26, they simply parrot what the commentaries say. And if they're honest, they're going deep down inside. This just doesn't sit well. It doesn't make sense to me that somehow James is making the validity of our eternal salvation uh, contingent upon something that happens later. Do I produce good works? Because if I don't, maybe I'm not saved. And so I think, you know, that's where I was. You know, that's what I taught. I assumed that's what it meant. Every commentary says that's what it meant. Uh, but at the same time, I always thought, you know, this is a bit uh, confusing. This, is, this doesn't add up because it, it creates all sorts of tension, and it makes me doubt my salvation. <laughs> 
if James, if what James were really saying, and again, he's not, but what most people say that he's saying, if what he were saying was that you've got to do good works down the road to prove that you're really eternally saved, well, then how can I be assured of my salvation? I mean, I, I can't tell the future. What if 10 years from now I'm, I'm in a season of life where I'm not doing good works? I'm catering to the flesh. I'm walking in the flesh and not after the Spirit. Then does that mean my faith was spurious? It wasn't real? It was defective? Maybe I'm not going to heaven after all. So I think on some level, you know, any intellectually honest Bible student has to read James 2 and say that the common interpretation of it doesn't add up. But it's really not even all that uh, complicated because uh, when, you, when you look at the context, as we're going to, uh, to go through here in a, in a minute, it's, it's, it all makes perfect sense, right? So uh, before we take a break, let me just summarize this first verse, James 2:14. What does it profit, my brethren? What will you heap up or accumulate in the context he's talking about at the judgment seat of Christ? If you have faith but you don't have works, can faith deliver you from the temporal dangers of sin? Will it be of any practical earthly value? That's the issue. The whole judgment seat of Christ, by the way, is about earthly deeds. It's, it's an accounting for what we did on earth. So it makes sense that the deliverance that he's talking about here is physical earthly deliverance the way it is 58% of the time when that word is used in the New Testament and the way it is 100% of the time when James uses it in this epistle. So James is talking about physical deliverance, not eternal deliverance, not eternal salvation. All right, let's take a break, and then we'll pick up the passage from there when we come back.